these transacting factors through these enhancer proteins or inhibitor proteins can either work well with the basal transcriptional machinery or block, and like those blockers, those quenchers, those blockers, those competitors, how they can stop the transcription factors from helping upregulate the expression of some genes. The nicest example that I'm going to start with, I just love this example, it's the hypoxia-inducible factor. So it's a transcription factor. It's a heterodimer. This heterodimer um, can be found, this transcriptional complex is called HIF-1, and it's very highly conserved, and, and most, if not all, oxygen-breathing species express this highly conserved transitional complex, the heterodimer HIF-1. HIF-1 allows for coordinated cellular, cellular response to low oxygen tension. So um, a student asked me a question, well, doesn't it take a long time for these HIF trans factors to be expressed and then be in the cell to elicit their effects? The hypoxia-inducible factor is really cool that these proteins are always expressed, but it just needs the right signal in order for them to make a stable transcription factor. Very cool. So let me introduce you to a little bit of uh, things that hypoxia response elements does. So hypoxia itself is the lack of oxygen supply to cells. So it re requires the coordinated response of many, many genes that are switched on or switched off, depending on what, what these genes are, in order to cope with this challenge. So this HIF-1 transcription factor, the heterodimer, we have an alpha unit and a beta subunit. And these transcription factors must dimerize together in order for them to go back to the DNA sequence, look for their cis elements to regulate expression of many, many different genes. The particular cis element is TACGTG, and this is called the hypoxia response element, or HRE, very highly conserved. And you will find this somewhere near the genes required to survive a hypoxic episode. This is a, a cartoon of what this um, heterodimer looks like. Again, it's the HIF-1 hypoxia-induced inducible transcription factor. So to the left, we have the HIF-1 alpha. And this is inducible, and it is oxygen-sensitive. So it, again, this is a heterodimer. See, both of, the, both of these peptides have a DNA binding domain. They have the dimerization domain. But if you look at the top, the activating domain, they call it transactivation domain, there's a, some proline residues. And I know Dr. Sobering told you about amino acids, those proline residues. The nitrogen on these proline residues um, can be um, hydroxylated. So oxygen-dependent, and in, in it's oxygen-dependent degradation. So I'm going to tell you how this all works in a minute. I just wanted to introduce you to the player. So we have these two proline residues that can be hydroxylated. If these, protein, if these amino acids are hydroxylated, that means oxygen is around. It can only be hydroxylated when oxygen is around. Have you learned about the proteasome pathway yet? Yes, polyubiquitination of a peptide. Well, when these proline residues are hydroxylated, they will signal to the proteasome complex, and that's a complex that's, um, it digests protein, it breaks apart protein, it degrades protein. So if oxygen is around, this HIF-1-alpha will be transcribed, but if there's oxygen around, these, these proline residues will be hydroxylated, and so as soon as they're made, they'll be decayed, they'll be destroyed. So you'll make some, they'll be destroyed, make some, they'll be destroyed, as long as there's oxygen around. So we call this inducible and it's oxygen sensitive. The HIF-1-beta 
is constitutively expressed. So it's always around in the cell, and it's mostly, it mostly stays in the nucleus. It hangs out at the nucleus. So what I'm trying to explain is that under high oxygen conditions, this HIF-1-alpha is hydroxylated. It's hydroxylated by um, an enzyme called proleal hydroxylase, which is, has four peptides together, two alpha and two beta. Those details you don't really need to know. Proleal hydroxylase in the presence of oxygen. I'm circling the oxygen right on top of this high O2. So that's in booth. High O2 proleal oxidase has its substrate. will hydroxylate the proline residues. And then if you look at the arrow going down, ubiquitin ligase will find it and will ubiquitinate that, that, um, that transfactor, that one peptide, HIF-1 alpha. And then it'll go to the proteasome pathway to degrade. That's if oxygen is high. It will be hydroxylated. However, if you look um, at this figure again in low oxygen, and that's in the, the pink side of this slide, no oxygen, oxygen is crossed out. That means those proline residues do not get hydroxylated, so it's stable. And now that it's stable, it will move into the nucleus, make a partner with a HIF-1 beta, and then we have an active transcription factor will bind down to that hypoxic, hypoxia response element, or HRE, and if you squint your eyes, you can see it's that TAG, TAC, GTG. That is the response element, so it binds down to that. And with the help of um, um, an activator protein called CBP something 300, interact with a basal transcriptional machinery that I'm circling to the bottom right. So that's how you have those proteins around all the time. They're expressed all the time, just waiting for the low oxygen environment. As soon as the low oxygen environment happens, that, that uh, peptide will be stabilized, and then this thing happens really rather quickly. Is everybody okay with that? Any questions? So that's sort of bringing all the elements together about the activation domain, proteins that react to the activation domain, and how we can get a response rather quickly rather than waiting for a de novo synthesis of this um, HIF-1 alpha and beta subunits? I don't know. It's rather fast because the proleal hydroxylase, that protein is always being made, and that proleal hydroxylase is always around, and the peptide is, is just, it's always being expressed, and it's regulated by its stability. So this slide suggests that we have a target gene. It can be a number of different target genes. And to the left, they all have the same hypoxia response element, HIF-1-alpha, HIF-1-beta together. And we have that CBP and P300. This all comes together in the presence of hypoxia. And the target genes can be found on different uh, chromosomes. There's a VGEF, and that promotes angiogenesis glycolytic enzymes for anaerobic metabolism, all the things that help us survive during a hypoxic episode, erythropoiesis, apoptosis, if we need to, okay? So all of these target genes on different chromosomes have the same cis element, and we're just waiting for the low oxygen environment and the stabilization of the HIF-1 uh, transcription factor to bind to its cis element to upregulate a number of different proteins. This is an example of induction of expression of a family of genes by the transcription factor and binding to this common enhancer, in, um, this enhancer sequence, but we have this common enhancer protein that helps turn on all of those different genes, upregulating all of those different genes. If you think about the HIF as a therapeutic agent to target inflammation, perhaps cancer, if we can regulate that HIF-1 that HIF transcription factor, 
And if you think about stroke and solid cancer tumors, solid cancers are quick growing and they're very hungry. They like their, their glucose and they're often hypoxic themselves. So if we can inhibit that HIF1 alpha, HIF1 beta mediated gene expression, we might be able to selectively kill tumors. So I think, I think that's really cool. So there's a lot of people studying hypoxia, trying to learn how to regulate that in order to just maybe um, artificially turn on apoptosis. Cool. The next example of um, a transacting element, and this is going to be a homodimer. A homodimer, and it's um, in response to glutocorticoids and the hormone response element. So this is GSE, hormone response elements. I have a picture of a steroid in their small hydrophobic molecule, and glutocorticoids is a major class of steroids. They're involved in the modulation of a number of different things, um, metabolic function, cardiovascular, immune, and even behavioral functions. So we have this intracellular effects. They're mediated by this glutocorticoid receptor. And I start to um, mumble my words, glutocorticoid receptor, because it's kind of hard to say if you say it three times fast. The receptor is a zinc finger type transcription factor. And the activated glutocorticoid receptor helps upregulate the expression of anti-inflammatory genes in the nucleus. I'm going to say that again. Upregulate the expression of anti-inflammatory genes in the nucleus. However, this same transcription factor can help repress the expression of pro-inflammatory proteins in the cytosol. So different, different areas, it, it can do different things. Upregulate anti-inflammatory genes in the nucleus, but in the cytosol we have different, different um, environment, so it helps repress the expression of pro-inflammatory proteins. So there has to be other proteins that are involved that interact with the activating domain, yeah? Some that are activators and some that are repressors in different parts of the cell. So um, various synthetic glutocorticoids are available, and they can be used as either replacement therapy in glutocorticoid deficiency or to suppress the immune system. But it's, however, it's a key anti-inflammatory treatment. So I have a dancing glutocorticoid receptor. What does that remind you of? A palindrome, yeah, but there's some NNNNs in the middle. So you know that the, the, um, the, the transcription factor, one of the, the homodimers is going to bind to the left and another one's going to bind to the right. So these are called the hormone response elements, HREs, our DNA sequences, phantom promoter, and regulatory sequence. And this is another example of how that we have that coordinated gene regulation of many different genes many sites across the genome, and this is how it's accomplished in the eukaryotic cell. Oh, that's dancing again. Here we go. If you look at the cell, we have the uh, plasma membrane, and in the cytoplasm, there's a big complex. Now, I, I think you're okay that uh, I, I've exposed the whole complex. Um, sometimes we cover it over, but we have in the dark purple at the top is a glutocorticoid receptor, and it has a little, a little shape in the middle ready to bind to the glutocorticoid. So in the absence of glutocorticoid, in this case we're talking about cortisol, the GR receptor, the glutocorticoid receptor, held in the cytoplasm and part of this big complex of proteins. However, in the presence of cortisol, the cortisol will move into the cell, react with the glutocorticoid receptor, and you induce a conformational change, and then it becomes free, and now you have an active glutocorticoid receptor monomer that I'm circling to the, right of the top right of your, your, your screen. Then if we have two, these two GREs come together and now you have that dimer. Now you have a homodimer in this case. We'll move into the nucleus. 
look for its glutocorticoid receptor elements and either upregulate transcription in in, uh, for particular genes, and depending on the protein that binds to it, can downregulate as well. So the glutocorticoid receptor dimerizes, moves into the nucleus, and then, um, and then this glutocorticoid binds the response elements in the DNA, that particular sequence. The next system is called the MIC-MAC system. And this is a heterodimer, but the cool thing about this heterodimer is that um, we have um, that the, one of the dimers is called MIC, and it has a transcriptional regulatory domain at the top. And what it partners with is called MAX. And MAX has the homodimer region, it has the DNA binding region, but it doesn't have that activating domain. So the best way for this dimer to work together as a team is to have one molecule of MAX, one molecule of MIC, and these things get together, and MIC regulates the expression of many genes involved in cell cycle progression. So these are cells that want to divide to help that cell go through that cell cycle progression. Sometimes the cell will express more of one gene than the other, so we've got the, the, the difference between the MAC and the MIC. <laughs> the MIC. <laughs> In the absence of MIC, MAX can form a homodimer, but it doesn't have that, that activation domain. So we have the MAX gene, and two, two will come together. The monomer will become a homodimer. It will bind to the enhancer DNA in transcription of many genes that this will bind to, to the, to the enhancer DNA region. Transcription of many genes important for cell cycle are inhibited. So in that case, the cell will stop going through the cell cycle, and it will become senescent, or sometimes it will, it, it will die. So all of the, uh, many of the important cell cycle proteins are inhibited. So in non-proliferating cells, MAX is expressed, MYC is not expressed, because MYC is the one that has that activation domain. In the presence of MYC, a MYC-MAX heterodimer is formed preferentially. So the MAX gene will be transcribed and translated, and that's the blue sphere to the left. MIC gene will be transcribed and translated, and that's the, um, the, sphere to the, the red sphere to the right, coming together, and then this will enhance, upregulate the transcription of all the proteins we need for cell proliferation. Um, the MIC polypeptide has that transactivation domains. It doesn't efficiently form homodimers because they interfere with each other. The MAX polypeptide, again, forms the homodimers and bind the DNA. Um, has no transactivation domain, so it's not very effective. Only the MIC-MAX heterodimer efficiently binds DNA to efficiently activate transcription. Now, this is very important when cell cycle becomes dysregulated, and we all know about over-proliferating cells. That's a disease state. That is cancer. So having these MIC-MAC system, it might seem kind of silly that I'm explaining one versus the other, but it's very important because sometimes tumor cells will overexpress MIC, and it causes the tumor to grow very, very fast, rapidly proliferating cells, very aggressive DNA. So this is what we have in words. Gene activation occurs when both MIC and MAX are made. MIC prefers, MAX prefers MIC. Gene repression results when only MAX protein is made in the cell. Homodimers of MAC will form if MYC is not available. But in a perfect world, um, well, in a perfect tumor, MYC overexpression often occurs in tumors. So in the perfect world, as according to a tumor, MYC overexpression will disrupt the equilibrium between activation and repression of genes. 
And they estimate that the CMIC regulates about 15% of all genes, the CMIC. So MIC overexpression favors that MIC-MAX complex, a big step in the pr progression of cancer. These, these are being studied a lot on how to alter this, perhaps finding a way if this in nature turns on tumor cell proliferation in tumors, perhaps we can find a way to turn it off. We're going to be finishing off with a concept of how to regulate or how to interfere with a transcription of these genes. And it's something that happened in nature. These, um, it's called RNAi or RNA interference. And there's two people called Fire and Milo. They won a Nobel Prize for their work, try, and they figured out how a different way than we studied before, a different way that we never even knew existed, a new way that little bits of RNA can regulate gene expression. Really sort of strange stuff, but these are the people who figured it out, and they worked with these C. elegans, these little C. elegans. Regulation of RNAi or RNA inhibition, there's two general types of regulation. You can inhibit translation of the mRNA product on the ribosome, or you can degrade the target mRNA. Now, if you go and you read up about some of this um, uh, RNAi, you'll find a lot of new terms, and we're going to be taking it back to the essentials. We're going to be talking about two species. We're going to call them microRNAs, in short, interfering RNAs. When they began to, to do this work, they realized that for the most part, microRNAs are bits of RNA that come from our nucleus. They can be from intervening regions. RNA polymerase actually generates this RNA. And this, again, comes from our nucleus. And then they're processed by a series of enzymes in order to, do, uh, to regulate transcription. Short interfering RNAs, they found it um, mostly happening like from viruses or from some sort of external, external um, situation where double-stranded RNA will come into the cell oftentimes a virus, as I said, and then it will take over the host cell system and be processed and, and begin to regulate gene expression. So that's at the beginning. Now, again, there's very many flavors or shades of gray, so if you look this stuff up, you're going to find a lot of different terms and think I didn't teach you enough, but I'm taking it down to the bare essence of two species called microRNAs and short interfering RNAs endogenous stuff from our nucleus. Do you know that word endogenous inside the cell? And exogenous stuff, things that come from the outside. We've actually learned how we can insert on purpose exogenous double-stranded RNA into the cell in order to regulate what's going on in a particular cell. We're doing it in tissue culture, and sometimes we try to do it in animals. Two naturally forming interfering RNAs are discussed, that microRNA, and this is derived from specific double-stranded pre-microRNA species that generate from our nucleus, from our genomic DNA. And this regulates expression by repressing mRNA translation. And number two, short interfering RNA, and these are derived from long double-stranded RNAs. And we have this, what we have in quotations, random processing, regulates expression by mRNA degradation. Now, that sounds like a lot, but I'm going to show you pictures, and hopefully this will um, make a little bit more sense. So again, we have additional small interfering RNAs identified recently, various functions, but we're going to keep it to these top two. We can use artificially in the laboratory now, now that we understand what's going on in the cell. If you look at this figure, I have the two situations. I have a cell, this pink cell, and it comes from Nature Review, so you know it's true. 
Hmm. I always wish I had a nature paper. So we have this nucleus, and this is this gray sphere, and we have um, the microRNA gene, RNA polymerase, will make something called pre microRNAs. Sometimes, have, have you heard of the stem loop, the, the, the hairpin loop? RNA sometimes makes, makes um, secondary structures to its own base pairs. It loops together and it forms a secondary structure. So this is um, a hairpin loop structure. Sometimes it's pre-microRNA. Sometimes it's just one double-stranded species. But sometimes you can have a whole cluster of them. And uh, if one, a long pre-microRNA is made from the DNA, they are all clustered together, and oftentimes they have effects that work in a coordinated sort of effort. So we have this enzyme called drosha in the nucleus of the cell that will make those clusters on one, sort of like polycystronic mRNA, yeah? So we have all of these um, three hairpin loops stuck together on one transcript. Drosha will cleave um, uh, the hairpin loops that are, that are stuck together, so we have this pre-microRNA. So before it was pri for primary microRNA, after drosha works on it, it's now called pre-microRNA. So we have one um, a hairpin structure. And there's an enzyme system called exportin, and that helps export the pre-microRNA into the cytoplasm. Now, double-stranded RNA that can be exogenously attained will, and as well as this um, pre-microRNA, they both can be processed by an enzyme system. It's an enzyme complex called DICER. What DICER does is it cleaves them either the pre microRNA or the double-stranded RNA, it cleaves them into manageable bits. And so we have two strands. We have um, the red strand. You can't really see the red. And then, then we have the blue strand um, for both the microRNA or the short-interfering RNA. So this dicer helps cleave it to a nice manageable bit, helps unwind the double-stranded RNA, and present it to something called the risk complex. So the risk complex, the nomenclature, stands for RNA-inducing induced silencing complex. So microRNA typically has mismatches. So we see the little bump, the little bump. The risk complex will present this now single-stranded RNA that will bind to the three-prime untranslated region of the mRNA. Do you remember all these words? The un three-prime untranslated region. And because it doesn't have a perfect match, see the, um, the microRNA has a loop on it, and um, the mRNA, the three-prime untranslated region, has these looped-out regions, so it's non-perfect match. So the risk complex just sort of holds it there onto the three-prime untranslated region, and it interferes with the ribosome um, uh, translating that um, ORF, and that's um, open reading frame. So in this way, the microRNA interferes with the translation of that protein. Oh, we're almost done. Don't worry. We're almost done. <sighs> And the short interfering, well, typically because a virus makes this or we can make it in a lab, it's, it's processed and it's presented to the risk complex and it binds down to the target mRNA perfectly. And when we have the perfect match, there's, there's domains in the risk complex that actually cleaves the mRNA. So once you cleave the mRNA, no pro we're not going to make any protein from that. So the short interfering RNA will inhibit the, um, the translation of protein by destroying the microRNA with the presence of once it's complex to risk. So the risk has the active sites. If there's perfect alignment, we'll cleave the mRNA transcript. If there's mismatching, which typically happens for microRNA, it will interfere with that translation. So the mRNA is still there. It's just interfering because the microRNA 
and the wrist complex are holding the three prime untranslated region really nice and tight. So there's just a little bit more words that um, to explain exactly what I just said. So we have a cartoon picture to say the exact same thing, the method, the mechanism of translation, translational regulation by microRNA. And it's thought that about one-third to two-thirds of all mRNAs have the potential to be regulated by these microRNAs. So we thought we knew everything about you know, RNA polymerase and all these transcription factors. Then we learn about these silly microRNAs that are actually um, quite efficient at uh, regulating translation. MicroRNA in cancer, well, they found that sometimes particular bits of RNA can, can be expressed and they can be upregulated. Um, and so it actually helps influence uh, cell proliferation. So some microRNAs that are normally involved in regulating cell proliferation, they can be duplicated and then they're amplified and then we overexpress the proteins required for cell proliferation. So these cancerous cells often lose... Um, their growth regulation and the cancer can get longer. Sometimes, so they often come in clusters like that, affecting many different proteins, upregulating them so that the cells proliferate really well. And here we have step by step on this slide the mechanism of mRNA degradation by short interfering RNA. So this is the same story just on its own, like isolated slide. And again, binding the three prime untranslated region. But when we when we have perfect match. Um, there's two active sites in the, the risk complex that will cleave the, the mRNA. So this forced RNA interference and short interfering RNA, is there a possible future in medicine? Well, there's some proteins that are in our cells, and if we um, actually inhibit them, we will stop cell proliferation, and we can force this, the death of some tumor cells. So it has a lot of promise, and it can be applied to HIV, and it's already been tried in flu and cancer genes, Right now, we're still working on the, uh, the cell models, but it's a possible genetic treatment by gene silencing. Um, and I believe this is one of the last slides, short interfering RNA or siRNA. We actually can do this in the cell, making sure that we have double-stranded um, DNA with a promoter region in the cell. If we put this in the cell, can uh, create double-stranded RNA. And once you have it in a eukaryotic cell, the regular machinery inside our eukaryotic cell, like the dicer and the risk complex, will do the rest of it. But because we're designing the short interfering RNA, we know what our target is. We know what we're trying to get rid of. And in that way, we can influence the way the cell cycle works. Ah, yeah. Now we're talking, last slide, Dr. May. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. I'm betting that it's going to be all mixed because you just want to get out of here. Oh, oh, I didn't have statistics. Okay, then you all got 100%. And it is regulation of genes on different chromosomes. Good luck, very good luck with your studies. Don't watch the Super Bowl.
Dice it.